I looked the man in the eye. I found it to be very straightforward and trustworthy. We think there's an excellent opportunity to put U.S.-Russian relations on a much stronger footing. I will tell you that President Putin was extremely strong and powerful. What complicates the situation at the moment is the efforts of Putin to uh, continue to engage in carnage, the kind of behavior that, uh, that makes the whole world say, my God, what is this man doing? America's post-Cold War relationship with Ukraine has been inextricably linked to Russia, and its relationship with Russia has been complicated, to say the least. Each president has had different agendas, foreign policy aims, and different personal relationships with Russian leadership. In this episode, I want to understand how that relationship may have played into Russia's decision to invade Ukraine, whether America is doing enough, and what impact this support is having in the States. This is Undercurrents, War in Ukraine, a special edition of Chatham House's podcast. I'm Ned Sedgwick. There have been accusations of America's complicity in the outbreak of war, but this hasn't been limited to anti-NATO expansionist narratives. There's been accusations on the other side that years of Russian appeasement, stretching back at least to the refusal to act against the use of chemical weapons in Syria, that America could and should have done more to rein Russia in. It can be a mug's game to play what if, but I want to see the crunch points in America's relationship with Russia and Ukraine to try and understand whether it's fair to put any blame on America at all. Here's Dr. Charles Kupchan, former special assistant to President Obama. Charles Kupchan, senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and professor of international affairs at Georgetown University. Charles, I personally think that there are two pretty massive events that happened under Obama. One is the chemical attacks in Syria. And the other is uh, the reaction to the 2014 annexation of Crimea and hybrid invasion of the Donbass. Is it fair to say that the seeds of this conflict were sown then? I think in many respects, you have to go back earlier than the Obama administration to the early 1990s and to the debates that took place during the Clinton administration about whether to enlarge NATO, how to build a post-Cold War European security order. Because uh, I think that the, the rift between Russia and the West, Putin's deep sense of grievance about being isolated from Europe, fears that Ukraine was headed toward membership in NATO and would emerge as a successful Western democracy. This, this is a conflict that was, that was long in the making. Uh, most of it, I think, has to do with the, the dark descent of Russia into autocracy and economic failure, Putin's desire to look to nationalism and muscle flexing for le- domestic legitimacy. But there is an important piece of this story that I think goes back to the 90s and the decisions that were made then about, about how to build a, a post-Cold War architecture. In terms of, of the Obama administration, I think in many respects, the Obama presidency was the beginning of what I would call an, a retrenchment era in American statecraft, where 
uh, Obama ran for re-election on a bumper sticker that said it's time for nation building at home. Uh, and that's because there was weariness with what we now call the forever wars in the Middle East. He desperately wanted out of Iraq and Afghanistan. I think one of the reasons that he did not respond to Syria's use of chemical weapons with force was to avoid getting dragged into another Middle East quagmire. That presidency was really the beginning of an effort to lighten America's load, to get allies to do more, to pivot to Asia, as the Obama people like to, to say. And then the Islamic State came back. Afghanistan did not move in a positive direction. So Obama was unable to pull out of the Middle East. He left that task to Trump, who moved the ball forward. But uh, in the end of the day, it was Biden who left Afghanistan. The annexation of Crimea almost seems kind of surreal now, given the force of Western uh, sanctions and the force of Western public feeling about Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine. You know, a lot of Ukrainians argue this started eight years ago. Half of the Donbass was taken. All of Crimea was taken. Um, and not many lives were lost in Crimea, but a lot of lives have been lost. I think there's about 10, 15,000 in the Donbass. Why, why didn't that produce a stronger response at the time? Well, I, I think the response was pretty strong in the sense that Russia was left isolated geopolitically and diplomatically. It was expelled from the G8. Contact with Putin diminished. Sanctions were imposed against Russia. Efforts to prepare Ukraine to better defend itself moved forward. Lots of training, transfer of weapons. So there was a, a, a response, but it was a measured response in which more emphasis was put on economic sanctions than on funneling weapons to the Ukrainians in part because of fear that funneling weapons to the Ukrainians could lead to a military escalation. Uh, but I, I do think that, that the response at that time was proportional to the nature of, of the aggression that Russia had carried out. Clearly, the Russians did not feel that the settlement that emerged after 2014 was sufficient. They continued to object to NATO's potential member opening of its doors to Ukraine. And clearly, Putin was operating under a, a set of mystical delusions about Ukraine, Ukrainian history. I think he actually thought that behind every Ukrainian was a wannabe Russian, that his forces would go in, that they would be greeted as liberators, that there was a Nazi regime in Kyiv, which happened to <laughs> include a Jewish president. Uh, but so he, he was kind of living in a world that was detached from reality. And he learned that the hard way. You know, he went into eastern Ukraine, attempted to get, get into Kyiv and toppled the regime. And Russian forces were bloodied and rebuffed. Clearly, the Ukraine that he thought existed no longer exists. This is the country that wants nothing to do with Russia 
and wants to forever leave behind Russia's sphere of influence. So why do you think this invasions happen now? I mean, Trump's administration was marked with friendliness towards Putin. So, so why do you think this invasion has happened now? It's a tough question. I think that there were several factors that led Putin to say it's time to roll. One was the sense that Russia was back, that the country had invested in its military capability, that oil prices were going up, and that the Russians were therefore flush with cash. They were supported by the Chinese. Putin has developed a very good relationship with Xi Jinping. And I think he saw the West as weakened. He saw political polarization in the United States with Biden having a tough time getting his domestic agenda through Congress. Britain had left the EU. In Germany, there was a new and untested chancellor. Uh, And so I think his view was, I'm strong, they're weak, this is a good time to go into Ukraine. And I think he made the same miscalculation that he made in 2014, which was that he could crack the West. He could divide the United States from Europe. He could drive a wedge within the EU. And lo and behold, neither has proved true. The United States and the EU have stayed in lockstep. The EU has remained unified and imposed far more punishing sanctions than Putin expected. So he miscalculated about what he would meet in Ukraine, and he miscalculated about his ability to divide the West. Do you think the invasion of Ukraine has essentially, was a, was a shift? It changed American policy away from looking internally? Or, or do you think that it is just the first moment that America's been able to kind of reaffirm its its goals and its alignment in a post-Afghanistan withdrawal? I think the, the, the war in Ukraine is a, is a game changer and that, number one, it makes it quite likely that we are headed back toward a world of militarized rivalry between competing blocs. And I think that when the dust settles in Ukraine, We're going to be back in something that resembles the Cold War. Uh, There'll be one block that is populated primarily by the world's liberal democracies, another block that's led by Russia and China, and tough geopolitical relations between the two blocks, and a measure of deglobalization. I think that we are going to see both the liberal democracies of the world, and China step back from interdependence because they're watching what's happening to Russia, and they realize that globalization has a dark side, that interdependence brings with it vulnerability. Uh, Secondly, I think American foreign policy is going to get more realist and less idealist, and that's because we are headed back to a world that is going to more regularly pay, play by the rules of realpolitik and the balance of power. Uh, and the U.S., I think, will now, not because it necessarily wants to, but because it has to, focus more on defending 
the liberal order, then expanding the liberal order. And then finally, and I say this with regret, I think that the war in Ukraine has distracted the Biden administration from, from what I think is, is one of its top priorities, and that is domestic renewal. You know, what's, what's new about this moment is that we're headed to something that's going to look like the Cold War. But unlike during the first Cold War when the West was healthy, today the West is not politically healthy. The United States is deeply divided and dysfunctional. The political center in this country has eroded. There is no longer a bipartisan consensus behind a steady brand of U.S. engagement in the world. Uh, And Biden, I think, understood these conditions and was really trying to invest heavily in the United States, in working Americans, in infrastructure, in broadband internet access, in healthcare, in childcare, to try to get working Americans back up on their feet. He was stymied in part by polarization and dysfunction, but now Washington is focused like a laser on the war in Ukraine to the exclusion of the domestic agenda. Coupled with that, we're looking at really quite striking levels of inflation. Gas prices are going through the roof. The cost of food is rising steadily, in part from supply chain disruptions caused by the pandemic, but also because of the disruptions caused by the war in Ukraine. Uh, I'm guessing that the America First Republicans are going to do quite well in the midterms. Yes, we've seen a surge in bipartisanship because of the war in Ukraine. I think that bipartisanship is going to diminish as we head toward the midterms. And as Americans get more and more unhappy with inflation. I want to dig more into what America is actually doing, what impact that's having on the war, and what impact that's having on America. I'm Leslie Vinjamori. I direct the US and America's program at Chatham House. So Leslie, what is America's strategy when it comes to the war in Ukraine? And what if anything, is that, is that end game? Well, I think the, the first and, and most uh, important part of the strategy has been there from the start, and that's really to defend uh, Ukraine's sovereignty, to, uh, to recognize both uh, in the specific case of Ukraine, but also in a global context, the most fundamental norm of international relations uh, as manifest in the UN system is that nations are sovereign, that they um, should not, that, you know, the use of force to violate the integrity of a, of a nation's borders is illegal. And it's, um, it's not only illegal, but it's, it's absolutely vital that that norm is upheld um, in, in Ukraine, that it's upheld more generally, because of course, a world in which powerful states were free to invade less powerful states uh, with, in this case, well over 100,000 troops is, is quite frankly not a world that any of us will, would want to live in. Has there been a sense amongst decision makers, and a lot of decision makers who were in government then are still in government now, has there been a sense of reflection on America's actions in the early 2000s? You know, I think at the moment, 
uh, the United States is deeply committed to really defending uh, Ukraine, um, to working with its NATO partners, to working with the United Kingdom in particular. Here, here we are, we sit in London. That's been absolutely vital. It's been a very strong partnership. It's absolutely committed to inflicting punishment on Russia via the sanctions uh, for the very specific purpose of weakening Russia's ability to fight the war in Ukraine, and also to send a very strong signal of how, of how critical um, Ukraine's sovereignty is. And it's important not only for that norm, not only for Ukraine, but because Ukraine sits in a very specific place within Europe. And there is this sort of broader question of a, a very a disruptive Russia, a Russia that we thought was a declining power with less potential to disrupt than it, than it clearly has had, even in the face of a war that it hasn't fought nearly as successfully as, as it or, or many others thought it might. But, I, you know, in your question of whether or not America's hypocrisy um, in violating sovereignty well, what about, you know, I think, well, but it, you know, to put, I think it's important to put a, to, to really define it because the, the critique that many people do raise, the whataboutism critique, it's really a question about hypocrisy when it comes to supporting and recognizing that sovereignty norm. And it's also about selectivity. And those are the two critiques that people are implicitly driving home when they, when they ask the question about America and its use of power and its violation of, of sovereign borders. Is it hypocritical to say it matters here, but it didn't matter there, and we were, you know, we were willing to violate Iraq's sovereignty, we the United States, or not? And I, you know, a couple of things. On, undoubtedly, right, America's power has been used for multiple purposes over the course of a very long history in which it's been the most, the, the most significant military power by quite a long stretch for, for quite a long time. How has the Biden administration, how has it achieved bipartisan support on this issue? Even partisan support, even within the Democrat Party, how has he achieved that? It's a, it's a really important question. and It's been stunning to see quite how strong the level of bipartisanship has been across Congress, across the foreign policy elite, and across the American electorate. I think in those very first few days when Tucker Carlson uh, and others were sort of out saying, actually, you know, we should look out for Russia. Why do we care about Ukraine? There were many of us who thought this might actually split the American electorate and, and Congress, and it, and it simply hasn't. That there's that you know, I think that the despite four years of Donald Trump um, just uh, seeking to sort of cozy up to Putin. Um, the Americans continue that suspicion and distrust of Russia. Um, they have grown more, not less committed to, to Ukraine. Um, and, and so, you know, the very clear violation uh, with, with so many troops uh, on the border of a country that, that Americans you know, have bear an affinity to, that they feel is leaning, that is part of the West, rightfully part of the West. Um, was was um was really a fairly easy case. Now of course the Biden administration did, you know, one thing that 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 really helped to develop support, which is that it it sort of channeled and demonstrated through by releasing, you know, news based on its very clear intelligence that that of what Russia's intentions were that it intended to invade and it built that case uh, with America's key partners. It also built that case uh, domestically within the United States. 
And it really championed it, right? There's a very clear telegraphing of what would happen, very strong statement from the president of what needed, what the response needed to be. And then, and then the final and really important point is that it, President Biden made it clear from the outset that, that the United States would not send troops. Now, some people think that that wasn't the right thing to say up front, that it, that it perhaps weakened America's uh, response or NATO's response. But the president knew that this would be you know, a red line, I think, for public support, knowing that it was one thing to back the Ukrainians with lethal aid, with various kinds of weapons, uh, and also with, with sanctions against Russia, but a very different thing to send U.S. troops. And so I think telegraphing that right out front, saying it again and again and again, has been absolutely vital to ensuring that bipartisanship. Well, I suppose there is one person who probably would have done it quite differently, and uh, that is Donald Trump. I mean, he is no longer obviously in office, but he is still a figure of interest, especially if he decides to run. How have his hardcore supporters reacted to this? You know, there there are some on the, the sort of very extreme Trump wing of the Republican Party who have continued to try to say, why are we doing this? Why is it all about Ukraine? We have inflation. We have all of our own troubles. Um, the president should focus uh, on America. And why is, you know, why is Russia to blame? Ukraine is, you know, why, why can't Russia have Ukraine? Um, or even Ukraine is Russia. I mean, but it's a really, it's a very minority voice. It's a losing position, even in a Republican Party where Donald Trump remains a very significant force, where many who are running in primaries and looking to the midterms are, you know, careful not to distance themselves too far from Donald Trump. On this question of America's support for Ukraine, it's not a popular position to oppose that. The majority have not opposed it. There's been very, again, there's been very strong support. So it is interesting to see even the past president in his party, which he, you know, Donald Trump managed to turn that party into his own party. He really never managed to shift how Americans thought about Russia. He, um, this was always a pos- place where he was an outlier with respect to Republicans in Congress and, and with respect to Americans registered, you know, as Republicans. How has the refugee set the situation worked in America? Have they let many refugees in? Uh, they haven't. And it's been, you know, I would say on questions of um, both immigration in general, on questions of Ukrainian refugees in particular, the U.S. has not had a good policy. It's, you know, his, uh, President Biden, I think, came in knowing that one of the things he really would have to contend with was immigration reform. He's not managed to do that. He, of course, famously put Kamala Harris on the southern border in his, in his very uh, first um, time in office. And, and that went very badly because the, the signal, the language, the rhetoric have led people to believe that this is a president who will allow many people into the United States. And it, and it actually hasn't been true. So you get you know people with very high expectations that they will be given refugee status, that, that will be, <clears throat> they will be allowed to come to the United States and in fact, that just hasn't been the case. So the numbers are low generally, and, and they're, they're very low with respect to, to Ukraine. We've seen America promise 
or seemingly promise planes to Ukraine or Poland to promise and then to withdraw it? Do you have a sense of what's guiding what they give and when they give it? Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things. The first thing, of course, as we know, is that the United States is is absolutely determined to try to support Ukraine in a way that won't lead to unintentional or unanticipated forms of escalation um, from Russia. That would, Anything that might bring the United States and, and Russia into direct confrontation. This is a very gray zone, right? Because, you know, we assume when we, we're talking about this, that there is something objective that, that you know, defines when the United States is in direct confrontation with Russia and, and when it's not. But of course, part of this is a problem of perception. And we know that Russia's perception is different from U.S. intentions. Um, but, you, you know, one is to avoid escalation. I think on the question of the MiGs, when, when the United States decided ultimately not to give those Polish fighter jets to the Ukrainians, you know, part of it was a fear of escalation, but part of it was also a calculation uh, that I believe came out of the Pentagon that, that these wouldn't actually be weapons that would um, that would move the dial at that point in the conflict, that they weren't actually going to make a big enough difference um, to make the risk worthwhile. And so I, and that I think got less attention in the media than, than it deserved. I think now there's a sense that, you know, as the fighting has intensified uh, in the East that and the nature of the fighting, that actually um, it, it is important to support. And that's why uh, Biden has come out and said that he will send these high mobility artillery rocket system. And there is a risk, of course, because, you know, they're longer range. They can strike targets up to 48 miles away. I think on balance, it's the right decision. But it's undoubtedly marked by very real uncertainty. There's an old cliche I remember hearing about the 2007 financial crash. If America sneezes, the world catches a cold. Seems the reverse is true today. As ever, I've not heard anything to dissuade me that this war is first and foremost an attempt to destroy an independent Ukrainian nation. Yes, you can look at US and the West's attempt to bring Ukraine closer the simultaneous courting and condemnation of Putin, but it isn't chicken and egg. Putin believes in this. It's something that he spreads amongst the Russian population, and it, it is a source of his support. However, you can't separate America from his narrative. And in so doing, America inevitably will always play an important part in Russia's foreign policy. We're taking a short break next week before we're back with another run of episodes. The first one will be focusing on a deeply important issue, and that is the development of Ukrainian national identity. Thank you for listening to this episode of Undercurrents, War in Ukraine. And thank you to Dr. Leslie Vinjamuri and Dr. Charles Kupchan. If you want to learn more about what's going on in Ukraine, head to Chatham House's website, chathamhouse.org. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this issue and on what aspects you want us to cover next. You can find us on all social media at Chatham House. I've been your host, Ned Sedgwick. The producers are Anouk Mier and David Dargahi from Earshot Strategies. And thanks also to Alistair Burnett at Chatham House. <laughs>